it's been a while because uh, I was in Brighton Fringe doing comedy. Then, ha ha ha, I had another bone out. So I realized that now my life is just bone out, then rest, then getting back on track, then taking more projects without thinking about the consequences, then bone out, ha ha ha. Anyway, I'm back on track. Today I have a special guest. Uh, it's Carl. Uh, Carl, could you please introduce yourself? Hello, uh, audience. My name is Carl Pinson Bustillo. Pronouns are they, them, because fuck the gender system, the binary. Um, 41 years of age. I am from Colombia, been living in Germany for 11 years, and been doing comedy for three and a half, four years now, with Pandemia Stops and stuff. There's no chance I did comedy for four years. So I did it for three, there you go, because <laughs> I, I started just like when you won the Berlin New Awards. Okay, so it's three. <laughs> yeah, three, there we okay. go. Okay, and, uh, and what made you start to do comedy? I was gonna kill myself, <laughs> and you uh, too. Yes, <laughs> I I felt like a disappointment because, or like a failure because I had a failed marriage. I was living under the pressure of being uh, what my mom called uh, the man of the house. Mm. I never felt really manly, and everything that I did was just to prove my mom that I was the little man that she raised. Um, I had a lot of creative energy in me and it was kind of like intoxicating me, like poisoning me. I didn't have an outlet, like a proper outlet. All I had was drugs and dates and party. And one day one of my dates took me to a comedy show and I heckled Francesco. This is, I, I tell this story all the time, especially when Francesco's around. And I heckled Francesco, Francesco Kishhoff. Hi, Francesco. And he told me after the show, like, if you think you're so smart as this guy in the back, it was Chris Doering, a showrunner in Berlin, for a spot and do a spot and see if you're smart enough to do five minutes. And I did my first five minutes and it didn't suck. And I took time off from work, just like three months of unemployment. Mm -hmm. And I just did comedy like three times a day. I didn't have like a, like a goal. I, it just felt good to like come up with something and then just go doing it. And that saved me, really saved me. Like it took me, uh, it took my mind away from the fact that I was like ready to depart this world and not be here. If anymore. you were ready to depart, why were you on a date? Cause that was all, like, I was on a date and that was the understanding that I had with myself. Like, this is it. This is what I'm going to be doing the rest of my life. I'm going to keep dating people that are not, like, compatible with me. We're going to have great sex. And at some point, I'm just going to have enough. I'm going to have enough, uh, like, energy or, uh, or bravery or bravado. And I'm just going to off myself. Mm -hmm. And I had plans for it. I was thinking about like going. Uh, let's not talk into <laughs> detail. <laughs> yeah, let's not. Uh, yeah, let's <laughs> I, I, I had lots of plans. I had too, plans, yeah. But, but uh, then I was like, ah, it was quite hard. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I had plans. No, too. I was getting to that point where I was like super numb mm -hmm. um, about everything, even though I was doing yoga and I had like a European sport club thing mm. and I was like doing sports and like getting to this like understandment that spiritually I was taking more from Berlin than I was giving and I had all these theories about why people had like burnout in Berlin and stuff like stand-up comedy gave me like a distance from my uh, my broken self to, mm -hmm. to look at myself in a way that was like all right all these pieces don't fit together let's mm -hmm. rewind and see what can we do about this I seriously took stand-up comedy as um, as therapy, which is Have insane. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. It's not. It's unsustainable. But it was true 
stand-up comedy that I found that I was non-binary, that I was like in the wrong uh, gender or gender system, and that I was sort of a, you know, contrarian to everybody. Like I have a different opinion than everybody. So you found out you are non-binary through stand-up. That's right. Yeah. How? Um, well, I started talking about being bisexual because I started remembering funny stuffs about my life. And most of the stuff that I remember were like, had to do with relationships, secret relationships that I had with men and how I wasn't being very uh, sincere about that. And that was just a point, like a middle point in my life when I went back to, but then when I started going back to the childhood, I started realizing that I was a very effeminate boy and I used to wear my mom's clothes to go to school and I used to get beaten up in school because I was very effeminate. I had, I had the voice of an angel or a little girl. And I used to get the shit beaten out of me for being, like, for not fitting the role of a man. So then I realized, oh, I've been hiding this part of myself. And then it started just like, it's not like I found it in, like, like oh my God, it's new, something new. It's like you start taking the dust off books and stuff and you realize like, oh, here it is. And yeah. then you meet other people and they tell you about this. Whole and why thing. did you come up with the conclusion of you are non-binary instead of you are actually bisexual? All right, so I went through the whole array of things. I started as bisexual and... I landed on non-binary because when I started hanging with queer people, uh, being queer is like a like a religion. Mm. It's kind of I feel like that. Like sometimes you try to convince other people of your beliefs or like sell the thing as if it saved your life or so. It's you know you take the addict away from the addiction and you put them somewhere else and they turn into that. So. The whole literature about not being non-binary, I thought that it fit with me because I was like against systems and I was uh, super active in like militant groups in Colombia that had to do with uh, abortion laws and uh, female rights and I used to go to parties where I used to be like Carla and all these things and like this compilation of things in my life just led me to understand that I was really against the whole binary system, that I didn't identify as a man or as a woman. And I took it, I took it too hard. And I went like, oh, okay. So I'm still working on it. Like I've, I don't feel like my personality is written in stone. Mm -hmm. I don't know if at some point I'm just gonna go like, I'm not none of the above. I don't want, but more and more, I don't want to have anything to do with labels or any kind of systems that um, uh, define me as something or put me in a box for other people to better digest. Mm -hmm. I think that nobody should have that. Like I think that we should take the time to understand other people, or you know, like move around and leave them be. Yes, wow, that's that's really powerful. But because since I met you, I always know that you identify as non-binary. I didn't know that's actually something very new to you. I think that when we knew each other, I wasn't identifying as non-binary. Mm -hmm. I was just like fucking around with gender mm -hmm. and doing things. Uh, the non-binary thing came when I met my my partner now, mm -hmm. who identify as non-binary mm -hmm. when we met. And through conversations, I was like, well, I feel like this speaks loudly to me. And I jumped on the on the van wagon as a thing because I didn't even use they, them pronouns until about two years ago or something like that. It was fre it's fresh. It's all like, it's all fresh to me. It feels, I still feel like I'm an imposter because of the way that I was socialized in Colombia, which mm -hmm. was like, I need to be a man, you need to be these things and stuff. And I still have a lot of homophobia internalized, and I have a lot of biphobia and transphobia, and things that I have to reckon with. So I think that the label helps me to actually remind myself mm 
mm-hmm. that I am full of all this hate that does not belong to me, but that there's this option of not fitting into the system or not being part of it. So when I met you, like you were like uh, quite depressed. Uh, so yeah. um, is was that depression was something new to you or something you have battled for a long time? I <laughs> I have a ch- I have a joke about it, which is like I battled with depression since my mom was born. <laughs> you know, I think that it was like transmitted to me. I sometimes feel like my life, like through therapy, the first thing that I came to understand about myself was that this was an underlying river of pain in my life. It came from. I don't know genetics and also like my own uh, personal experience and things that happen at me and to me, like things that happen around me and things that happen to me as well. Um, so when you met me, I was coming out of um, of a really hard depressive uh, stage, which was after my divorce. And I was actually just like resurfing. You know that moment in the depression where you mm-hmm. feel like you're underwater, but then you start looking up and you see like, all right, I'm ready. I'm going to start like decompressing now. Yeah, that's when I found the stand-up. See, um, I found stand-up like in the quietness of being underwater. And once I heard my voice and the things that I had to say, that's when I started to swim up. Mm-hmm. And I think that when I started practicing BDSM and going to sex parties and sex clubs and just like being the pervert that I always wanted to be, it's when I actually just like my head just like went out of the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so it had to do with queerness. and. Yeah, uh, my question was like... Uh, is that your first depression? or No, uh, oh, no, not at all. It's the first one that I identify as a depression because uh, I had the tools for it. But I think I've gone through a few. I've gone through periods of uh, inactivity that have been to uh, the detriment of my body as well. Like I went through a seven or eight month period where I never left a couch in my when house. When I was it? When, when was I was uh, 15 to 16. Okay. In the tra- transition from 15 to 16. Oh. And then I had another depression, but this one was a functional one. Um, but I was just self-medicating with a lot of cocaine. And, and the one was that? This was actually when I was 20 to 21. Um, at that stage, I think that my body was asking for reasons to break down. Because I don't know if you know this uh, or you understand depression the same way that I understand it. Just like an inflammation of the emotions. It's your body protecting you from something that, from like an emotional or a psychic wound. So, for instance, you, you hurt your knee, your knee gets swollen. And it gets swollen just to protect nerves and yeah. other areas. That yeah, might be depression is not a disease. It's the symptoms of a uh, uh, non-normal, non-healthy life. Yeah, I- it shows you, okay, your life is not going great. You need to change whatever you are doing. But the, uh, the symptoms itself, they are just symptoms. I just, ha- I just mm-hmm. came out of one. Mm-hmm. L- last year was pretty tough. Not only, oh, uh, not only did I become a parent, but then I had to deal with uh, actually having to locked out my mom out of my life yeah. while being a parent. So since we start to talk, like uh, your mom came out uh, many times already. Yeah. Uh, is something we can talk about? Of course, I, I'm, I'm in, a, I'm, I'm in a point where I can like open up about that. I, I come from a long tradition of abuse, physical, emotional abuse. My mom was part of that chain. And um, I think that she actively tried to change that at some point. It didn't work, 
Um, so I grew up under the constant vigilance of my mom trying to not fuck up. And that made me um, a very anxious person, a very anxious kid trying to fulfill all the roles that my mom, because my mom was a single parent. How, how about your dad? Well, my dad um, and my mom divorced when I was two. And uh, my dad was a drug addict. Uh, he abused cocaine a lot and also physically abused my mom. And uh, he also came from a story of violence in his house and trying to prove himself uh, worthy of the love of his mom. So he started doing weird businesses that led to his death mm -hmm. or something. Um, there was also like a big trauma in that respect because when he died, he disappeared. Like the people that killed him, instead of like bringing back the body to his family, they decided to bury him somewhere in the desert where nobody could find him. I, I, I have a joke about this. How old were you? Um, when it happened, I was about, what, 10? But when I found out that my dad had, had died, I was 14. Mm -hmm. And it was about the time when I was ready to, like, oh, I really miss my dad. I mm -hmm. wish I could spend more time with my dad. Mm -hmm. um, that never happened because we found out about that. I have a joke about it, which was that um, my dad ghosted my mom and I by dying. And uh, me, instead of going to therapy, I decided to do a documentary about it. Because back then, when I was a man, I would have also done anything except go to therapy. Because mm -hmm. you, know, uh, you have all these heroes whose parents get killed and they turn into Batman or mm -hmm. whatever the fuck they want to do instead of going to therapy. <laughs> So I, <laughs> look, I, I think I've been going to therapy wrong since I was 15. But when I, when I started going to therapy in my, f in my marriage, um, I started like getting the right tools to deal with all those things and to understand that the life of my parents is not my life. And I think the, the pinnacle of that, the ending of that was me cutting my mom out of my life mm -hmm. last year. After she told me that one of these podcasts <laughs> or <laughs> something like that um, had made her want to kill herself. After I just had a baby and as a parent, you need a lot of like, you need a lot of emotional strength so you can transmit emotional, some sort of emotional strength to your kid because mm. kids are super sensitive. Mm -hmm. And my mom came over to watch the kid, and uh, she just destroyed me. She lives in Germany? She lived in um, Sweden mm -hmm. with her husband, who mm -hmm. is my stepdad, who I love. Um, but nevertheless... So um, you both made in Europe? Um, well, my mom had... My mom and I have something in common, and it's that we both wanted to be white people. Mm-hmm. And we have fought hard for mm -hmm. that, right? She has a good pussy. Like, she still can use that pussy. I know. She, <laughs> look, <laughs> she met this guy on the internet when uh, dating apps wearing a fin. She met ah. this guy on a Yahoo public chat. Do you know? And is it, like, an actual, like, nice guy? Or is there some, like, a guy would just find any... Define a nice guy. Like, like there's <laughs> lots of, like, it's like a... No, normal guy in Sweden. When you run into them in in real life, you would think, oh, that's a nice guy. Or you see some guy, they are so weird in real life. They have to go on internet to find a wife in Asia or in other shithole countries. Well, he ain't per perfect. <laughs> 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 but Francisco has uh, has qualities, mm -hmm. and he he won my heart. Not a perfect man at mm -hmm. all, mm -hmm. like at all. Very Latino man, even though he's been living in Sweden for a long time. Okay, so your mom ha has a good pussy. She got her own, like, a... Uh, it's a very uptight woman. Hi, mom, if you're listening to this. I, I believe <laughs> that she she likes to uh, search me on the internet. That's why I don't put out a lot of content as well, because I'm 
like in the back of my head i'm afraid that i'm gonna kill my mom i i have <laughs> a question like uh, what do you have described like uh, what really resonate with me uh i also grew up uh, in a very empowered uh, family without uh, without a dad only difference is that in my family there's never a, a history of domestic violence i think it's because uh it's because like uh, uh like China, like we only know like uh, the generation till my granddad, right? Like uh, before that, uh, the the country was in war for like hundreds of years, and uh, no one remembers anything. They were just survive, uh, pass down their gene, and uh, so I think there's no domestic violence is because my grandpa he he kind of married into his wife's family, and uh, uh, in Chinese. Chinese tradition is a very shameful thing. Only so so the the children will use the family name of uh, of my grandma instead of his. So in Chinese sense, that means you as a man you cannot carry your name, and you are failure. So it's only those men who who really don't have some mo don't have money or have really uh, like broken background, they would choose to do so. So my grandpa was really, really like uh, living the shame and uh, feeling like, um, how do you say, um, salty about it all the time. Uh, but uh, that's why we don't have domestic uh, violence history in my family because uh, my grandma was the per person who has the power, although she's a woman. And uh, I, which I found okay, although the everyone in my family is fucked up, but no <laughs> one is beating anyone. That's good. Well. Nobody's beating anybody, but there's a lot of violence, generational violence there. Mm. There's like, I mean, domestic abu abuse is not just like hitting somebody. It can also be you telling somebody that they're not worth, that they have no worth. Yeah, that's the definition in the white world. <laughs> I mean, in the rest of the world, violence means violence, you know? <laughs> no, uh, uh, don't I know it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like one of my earliest memories is watching a circle of my boxing uncle hitting my mom, and then my other uncle who's not a boxing following my boxing uncle to hit him, and then my grandma. It was like a roundabout <laughs> of abuse, mm -hmm. and I was about like what five or something, and that's one of my oldest memories. My family running behind each other because <laughs> my uncle hit my mom, and you know. Um, nevertheless, I've seen British white people where it's posh in like family reunions, like telling each other things like, oh, it would be so nice if you would choose like a career that will give you more money or something that will make you more respectable. That's abuse as well. Ah, <laughs> I think that hits. I, I'd rather have a punch than that kind of shit. You suck <laughs> just like my mom. <laughs> you, you know, my, my ex-boyfriend broke up with me, and my mom really... Because you wouldn't hit him? Or <laughs> no, no, my mom really loves that guy. And uh, then after the, the breakup, I started to tell her some things I, I didn't tell her before. I told her, like, uh, this this guy, like the ex-boyfriend, he, he, he is French, and he's from really... Like a like a privileged background. Like, I I went to his family house. We like you can have a techno party there, and uh, there there like there's so many rules rooms. Like, uh, the the garden is bigger than all the parks combined in my neighborhood when I grow up. So, and then he would have this really like a wide um, west. Uh, view on on relationship and uh, whatever he's like ah, oh uh, like all his friends like uh, they are in relationship they 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 oh you can fuck whoever you want you can you can do whatever you want there's no rules there's no guidelines in mm. in relationship so he's a guy like this and then he would for example he he would argue he said hey all your all your beliefs about uh, like a uh, rules or whatever keeping distance to uh to other people he doesn't believe it makes sense he's like so you mean he told me he said you mean now if i go on camping i cannot sleep in the same tent with other girls he's like 
you you want to limit my freedom. He and he says in a way that I am crazy. He's like, <laughs> uh, aren't you crazy? Now I cannot sleep with other girls in the tent. Wow. Okay. And and, uh, and then he he went uh, on a trip with his friends. When he came back, he told me, "Hey, Moni, you know I'm so great. I'm so great. I went on a uh, on a, like when I was on the trip. All my friends and we we all download Tinder to to meet local girls to hang out." And uh, uh, he said, "Oh!" And uh, one of his friends told him, uh, "Told him he said, 'Oh, if the night got well, they can each pick up a girl and go go home to fuck.'" And uh, and uh, my ex-boyfriend was so proud. He told me, when his friend told him that, he said, "No, no, no! I cannot do that because of money. I I cannot hurt money by sleeping with other girls." And he came home and told me with such pride and proud. It was like. Dude, you just, you just, you just followed the bare minimal of the fundamental, fundamental agreement of our relationship, and you are so proud of yourself. <laughs> and so I, I like I that you used the fundamental agreement on that. That's good. And for and then I told my mom this. You know what my mom said? She said, "Oh, you didn't tell me all this. Yeah, you are right. This is really annoying." Like ah, this is the most annoying thing. I would much prefer domestic violence. <laughs> It's much easier. He just come home to beat you up because you know there's no one else involved. And uh, after the beating, everything goes the same. It's so much simpler. Wow! After the beating, everything <laughs> goes the same. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> They are neither acceptable. They no. are both not acceptable. No. How would you prefer someone beat your daughter? I hate to say this, Moni, but that's the binary to you. <laughs> that's what the binary system does to people. Mm -hmm. Like it traps you between two options, mm -hmm. and you have to move between two. And they don't like allow you the like the comfort mm -hmm. or the breathing space of an, a spectrum of choices. Yeah. Do you understand? Yeah, It's talk with my mom, non-binary. Uh, look, if somebody understood, like, if people understood the whole thing about non-binary better, they wouldn't be shitting on it that much, because all these roles are bullshit. <laughs> yeah, so, so, uh, uh, my question was, like, um, I, I resemble a lot with your upbringing, um, and uh, the relationship with my mom is lots of love and lots of hate, and uh, it took me a long time to really, but, but, but the, the The love part always like, like uh, on top because I know, I how hard it is she raised me like how much energy she was there. So my I uh, while you talk about your mom, I'm I'm really surprised like how it went into such a bad place that you resent her so much that you had to cut her out from your life despite she's the person who's actually there and raised you it's um wasn't easy but it was her or me um i can't hate my mom i suffer every day because i am not able to find the love that i thought was there but You know when you're dating somebody and you are on that period where everything is beautiful? It's like the magic period, you know? I had that with my mom. And you know when somebody tells you, you broke the magic, the magic is gone. That last move, once my mom saw me happy, fulfilling her dreams, not my dreams. I mean, I, I look, I went into having a child thinking that it was me who wanted to have a child. Turn out, turns out I was just following the wishes of my mom. Very passively, I was trained to be a man, be married in a relationship, have a child, give my mom a grammy, grandkid. Yes? I find myself in Berlin. I start doing my own thing. And my mom tells me that it wasn't enough. You know? 
So I did the same thing that with my experience in therapy and with my um, new understanding of my of myself as the center of the love that I give. Yeah. And I apply it to her. It was harmony because society tells you that that's the root of everything. That's where ev that's the person who sacrifice. You you have to love your mom. You have to like. It was hard. But doing it was a healing process at the same time. Putting distance between my mom and me has given me everything that I have today. Has made me the parent that I am with my kids. Like I couldn't expose my child to the kind of abuse that my mom unconsciously was subjecting me to. And I am not responsible for the amount of therapy or the amount of mental health care that my mom receives. And I am not one to go, go get mental health care or go take care of your mental health. I am responsible for myself. And once that happened to me, once that fracture happened to me, once that anger was there, what my therapist recommended me was like, capitalize on that own that rage you feel anger for your mom uh, towards your mom own it what would you do in this case if it was a friend if it was just a friend just lower your mom to a level of a friend and see what you would do and my only tool was like well i will put distance between this person and me and i know that in a while we'll be able to sit down and have a talk and i i'm doing that nevertheless because it's been such a long relationship it's taking a while for me to like all the emotions that are resurfacing with my mom are all the things that I remember from the past that are like, no, you fucked me up when I was a kid. No, you this when I was a kid. And it is my rage to point it toward my mom because I never felt justified to have rage towards my mom, the person who gave me life, the person who sacrificed herself, the person who didn't know better, but yet did the best that she could do. All those things, I just like, you fuck me up. I need a moment to process all this. And I'm taking my time to process it. Monique, and it has worked wonders. It, have been, it has been a breeze. It has been painful as fuck. Because it's somebody that I love. I'm, I'm not saying here, like, I fucking, but I can't let her do this to me anymore. I can't, can't allow her to dictate what's good and what's not good about my life. There again with the binaries, you know, good or not good. There's good things or bad, bad things about me. If you can't accept me like that, you can't have me. <laughs> so my, my question was, what do you mind to talk about? Like, we don't need to go into details, but uh, do you mind to um, share a little bit what has made you have all this anger? Towards my mom? Yeah, like what has what has she done to make you feel like she she you are so angry towards him uh, towards her? Because in my case, I I knew that uh, like it's the constant uh, like uh, uh, like judging and uh, like subject me to oh you are not beautiful you are not good looking always talking down on me in a way that she wants me to achieve more but i just never believe in myself so i i want to know like how she fucked up what she fucked up wow um pick a year <laughs> just give me a year mm -hmm. and i'll tell you how my mom fucked up with me that year Give uh, me a year. No, no, I don't mean like a. No, it's just that I have so many landmarks where mm -hmm. my mom, like, directly fucked up with me. Fucked up with the way. And through therapy, I have gone back and I have found that all this anger and all these things that I'm carrying around towards her, she put in there. Mm -hmm. You know, she can put in there. So I can go back to. Um, I can go back to. Being a baby and being with somebody who had a short temper and who reacted like very violent toward very violent towards me, um, I can go back to 
I've been I've been through hypnosis and I come back to moments that I have spoken with her about. Like, you remember this time when we were like on a an, on an alley and you like took me in my uh, in your arms and cradled me and told me like, oh, we're not worthy of this or so. Like I remember that because that shit is in my head. But that's just like the, uh, you know, the things that you do without knowing that you're doing. Do you want one specific? My mom abandoned me when I was 13 because she broke up with a guy and she decided to go to Aruba and leave me in Colombia with a complete stranger while I was going to school and she was like somewhere else oh passing a, a heartache. Three years. Sweet. She leave you alone. With a complete stranger. So that's the one, that's the one oh. where you go, wow. You see what I mean? Oh. And I forgave all that. And I put effort into like, oh, you know what? Because I, look, look, my fantasy was always to see my mom in front of me on her knees asking me for forgiveness. And I came to a point on my 30s when I was married where I said like, I need to apologize to my mom. And I apologized to my mom and that worked magic and we started having like a good relationship. And she started having her doubts, but on her mind, I was a man, I was this and her job was done. I was already living in Europe, a white life, so she did well, all mm. good. Once she sta she found out that I was coming out as queer and dating men again and doing all these things, suddenly she wanted to kill herself. She mm. felt like this was, and you know, that just piled up to the fact that uh, I always had the feeling like I wasn't enough mm -hmm. to make her happy. You know, and I can point you, you give me a year and I'll show you something that my mom did to let me know that I wasn't enough, that I needed to be better. You know, that I needed to be something else other than what I was at that Have moment. you confronted her? To of course, yeah. of and course. And what's her reaction? Well, the same thing that you just told me, which is like, mm -hmm. I did the best I could. You should be grateful with me. I am your mom. And it's like, that's okay i accept that she was 16 when she had me she probably had to stop her developing as a human being to take care of me nevertheless that's not my problem being born is not a consensual act nobody asks you if you want to be born money you're just janking to this world it's your parents responsibility to tell you well it ha sucks ha it sucks but it might be beautiful. Uh, let me show you a few pretty things and not just like hammer you into like, oh, why are you not like the kids in the magazines or the kids in the other things or the kids in this and on, on that? Have you like, I, I, what you said, like being born is a, is not consensual action. I really, really agree. Like when you were a child, were you questioned? Were you, why, why? Did you bring me to this world? Have you had that thought? Not anymore, because mm -hmm. I enjoy being alive mm -hmm. a lot. Um, there are many things that I like about this planet. There but did you have that thought? That's my question. That what? Did you question that before? Of course. Of course, Moni. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Look, uh, my mom abandoned me when I was 12, when I needed her a lot. My dad died, and we never found his body. Like, not that I had the best relationship with my dad, because drug addict, mm. abuser, abused child, mm. knew nothing about love. His idea of love was uh, holding me at gunpoint when I was five on the door of the house where he and his drug dealing friends, and there was a police there, and there was my dad holding me at gunpoint. So that's the kind of love that I have from my parents. Do you think that a person with those experiences in life is a person that can tell you, no, I actually find pretty things in the world. I made an effort, Moni, because mm -hmm. nobody else made an effort for me to show me pretty things in this world. Mm -hmm. I made a big effort to find it out. And I found them. Mm -hmm. I found them. I like I like rainy days. I like 
the moments when it starts snowing. It's these little fucking things that I have learned to love just to not go like, this planet sucks. This plane of existence, not just this planet. I can imagine that in another planet, it's the same shit. But I have to make it bearable for myself. And now I have a child, so I have to show... Like, I'm so glad that I have things that I find fascinating about this planet that I can show my child and not that miserable shit that was shown to me. So you were talking about, uh, like, uh, finding little things, little beauty in life. Um, if no one has shown you, when do you remember when is your first time to realize, oh, it's just this little things I can look at here, I can look at there? I remember that the first like the oldest memory that i have was my dad um, stealing me from my mom and taking me on a holiday to a place called providence it's like a la an island north of colombia and i remember that that's the first time that i saw beauty and i saw beauty in a lake full of crabs that's one of my freshest memories um it was a it was a surface of water but the surface was moving because it was like infested with crabs. And the little kids from the, from the island will just like skim the surface just to get crabs. And we will go and boil the crabs and eat them. So it was more of a, um, of a sensorial experience. It was first like the view and it was the way the light hit the... I still have memories of those things. You know, I still have memories of those kids. That was the first time that I ever saw like a stranger's vagina. I don't know if this woman was showing me her vagina or if she was just lying down with her legs open and I just happened to walk by and look at that. You know, not vagina, but the, the vulva. I didn't see that mm -hmm. deep enough, the vagina. But anyway, that was one of the beautiful moments in my life and it was like one of the moments that my mom was the most stressed or whatever. <laughs> and this was one of the moments that showed me like, wow, look, it's so simple. It's so simple. It was just a lake, some animals, and then the pleasure of just like gathering something, going, cooking it, and then eating it. Like that sense of community, that sense of unity that you don't talk to people that much, but you feel like you're connected not only with other humans, but with an environment. I was about five or six or seven. I can't remember how old I was when my dad stole me and took me to that thing, but I know it was pretty early. And I remember that ever since I was a child, I was very observant. And I was always either drawing or doing like long lists or you know, like documenting whatever was happening around me. So I found I find things fascinating. Even though the world is going like, stay down, motherfucker, stay down. All my life has been like, stay down, stay down. I don't I don't let the world just put me down that much because there's a lot of things that I want to see <laughs> and want to experience. So. And uh, uh, is that how you get into like a film filmmaking, like uh, being a creative? I I I remember that that started because I started going to theater school mm -hmm. and once I started going to theater and I saw the teacher what I told my mom was like I want to be a director a film director but then I had a uh, an age like when I was 17 to 19 when I wanted to be a, a novel writer when I was 16 I wanted to be a poet when I was 20, I wanted to be a rock star. Then I wanted to be a novelist again. And then I, th here's the other thing. My mom used to work in television. She used to be a makeup artist and she used to take me to set. She also forgot me once <laughs> on a set, like went home. And then once she was home, she was like, oh shit, I forgot my kid. And she had to go back to the studio and pick me up. And I was just like, very like relaxed in studio so working in film connects my storytelling with those memories of hanging with my mom 
at work. So I feel I feel at home in a studio, like in a film studio or in a shoot. I don't complain that much about the long hours. I complain when other people complain, but just to like have like that community feeling. But yeah, it comes from that, from finding that beauty and wanting to like communicate. That's why I do stand up as well. I um from your comedy, I I learned something about you. Um, you you talk about you are a um. You are a survivor of uh, uh, sexual assault. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Is something you you are okay to talk a little about? Uh, at this moment, yeah. Um, I like we're not doing this just for me to like show myself as mm. like a, a harsh person or a person or like no. Um, I can talk about it at some point if I have mm. to jump out. Mm. I can jump out. I. I'm not okay with the label of survivor. I yeah. just have to yeah, say Yeah, let's now. just uh, w yeah, what has happened like uh, I was a I was a victim of rape. Uh -huh. I was a victim of intrafamilial rape. So it's in family. Of course, he was a cousin. Oh. And um my mom again didn't know where to leave me, so she trusted family members and his family member just abuse me and he he's done it again to other children um it was me coming forward that put that into light and i was ostracizing my family just for saying that at the beginning i was just like How you, you're probably you? lying when i the first time that i like yeah. stated that this guy might have touched me when i was little I might have been 14 or 15. I've always been like a little piss ant, mm -hmm. you know? I've always been either punk rock or heavy metal or like anything different from whatever other people are doing. I hate when people get together uh, with ideologies and like, we're all like this. This is the normal. I hate the word normal because there's no normal. So... Once I started talking about that with my family, they put me aside. And my mom only believed me when I was like 17 and I was still like, hey, you know that this motherfucker this, di did this and this to me, right? Like he used to tell me this and this in my ear and he used to like. How old is the other person? He was 15 when he, when he raped. And you were 14? No, I was a baby, honey. I was like four to five. This this guy was a monster. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And do you remember it when you were five? Oh, my God. I <laughs> I wish I didn't remember a lot um. of things in my life, but that's one of the things that I still have, like, moments when, like... And then you start to talk <laughs> with your family when you were 14? Even... Even all, even younger than that. I remember mm. that saying that when I was seven, then saying that again on a family reunion when I was twelve. Wow, that's really brave of you. Not brave. I j I'm just like, it's just me. It's mm. just what I do. I just mm. like, I pick fights. Mm -hmm. You know, I I tell my partner that I have like a high sense of justice. Mm. But it's here's what's happened when when people fuck you over a lot like for instance me being uh, an immigrant here in germany i have to learn all the rules and all the things and i have to apply them when somebody on the street is on a bike on a pedestrian path and they are trying to get through and, and if i turn around and if i see a white woman doing that like ringing the bell so i move out of the way on a pedestrian path I immediately turn around and I stand in front of her. Because that's not just, that's not, there's no justice in that. Because I have to learn all the rules. Because I always had to be the good boy. I always had to be the best. I always had to be like, you know, an image to project to the outside so people think that everything is fine in this family. So I have that thing that is that, like that high sense of justice. All my life, I had it, all my life. And that was part of it. Like when I was 12, just kind of like, no, this motherfucker 
that motherfucker over there, he diddled me when I was little. Not only diddled me, but he was telling me, like, he comes to choo-choo train and all that shit. And my family was like, oh, let's take the kid for ice cream and let's take him away or something like that, you know? And they don't believe you. They're like, why are you shaking the water? Why are you making us this complicated? And I was like, and it's that whiteification of the family, even though we were all like brown in my family, it was like, you have to be proper. There can be any scandals, there can be any issues in this family. This family is perfect to the eyes mm. of everybody else in the neighborhood. Yeah. And my family was nothing but mm. a bunch of <laughs> dysfunctionality was the name of our game, mm -hmm. of my family. So yeah, I, I pointed it out. I don't forget things and I, I wish I knew how to shut up about things. I get in trouble in the stand-up comedy scene all the time because I don't have the same filter that other people have to like not shake the boat. I always shake the fucking boat. And how, how after this, how did you process all this? I didn't, Muni. Mm. I didn't. I actually did all my processing last year, <laughs> mm -hmm. to be on quite honest, and it was thanks to my daughter. Yeah, I I was uh, about to start this topic. How, wh what made you? I I want to understand you because I I also come from a dysfunctional family, not as dysfunctional as yours, but I I just feel I I don't want to continue this. I I don't want to um, bring another life to to this world. I I know I will traumatize the 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 life. So I. I want to understand you. What made made you want to have uh, have children? Um, it was the it was the wish to have a something that I didn't have, which was a family unit, like a proper family unit. That was <laughs> the romanticized version that I had in my head. All right, mm -hmm. I'm giving you the reason that I construct. Cause the name of my game was always being smarter than my mom, and ever since I was a child, if I was smarter than my mom. I was gonna be safe. Like the problem was when I was dumber than my mom, because I couldn't help her soul, whatever, and I, uh, that would mean violence against me. But the problem with me, like reverse engineering, uh, the reason to have a baby, is that I lied to myself all the time. Uh, all I wanted was my mom's approval, and the ultimate approval that I was gonna get from my mom was by giving her grandchildren um, I found that out the hard way which was by having a baby and as soon as I held that baby in my arms I realized I fucked up okay um, and it was like hit the ground running get better like all right now you know now you know what's happening and you know that this baby came to this world with intention my partner and I would both wanted to be parents. Um, but we made all this like effort and we invited the baby because none of us could have children. I have a low sperm count because of mumps that went to my testicles and Maria had like some sort of... Um, Oh man, I forgot the name of the thing, which is like cysts on the um, Gewehrmutter, what's the name of that, on the uh, uterus. Mm -hmm. Like in the inner lining, she has like little cysts, mm -hmm. you know? And when you get pregnant, those things start pushing the baby and the baby might not make it till the end. Like a pregnancy was gonna be something hard. But then we did our magic and we like, some on the baby and the baby came along to my surprise and once i was a parent because i wanted so much i wanted it so much because i thought it's not gonna be possible i'm 41 if it didn't happen when i was 20 and i was fucking all those people without condoms mm -hmm. it's not gonna happen now that we've been trying for about a year but the baby came and once the baby came the first thing that the baby did was just like reflect on me all the things that I was lacking. All my needs. It's the first thing that a baby like reflects onto you. 
It's like, shit, I, I don't have this, and I need this, and I have this, and all, all this. Seeing the baby suckle on a tit, and then seeing the baby drunk on breast milk, which apparently has a lot of CBD, made me realize that I use we as a big crutch. And I am trying to go back to my mother's breath by just like smoking a lot of weed. It's a it's a coping mechanism. I use it as that now, and and it's like a, a ringing bell for things that are not going good with me. So the baby was on breast milk, I was on weed, and we were coming together at some points and having like cute times as if I was the uncle of the baby. And I didn't know what to do, Moni. Um, my mom came, did the whole thing, and I felt broken. And the only thing that I thought that I could do was be strong for my baby. And I couldn't be strong, so I started going to therapy because I didn't have any tools for that. Like, the last therapy didn't give me eno enough tools for parenting with a, with a narcissistic wound, like a fresh narcissistic wound in my, in, in my emotions. So I go to therapy, and I tell me, you need to process a lot of trauma that you're, that you're still carrying around, because that's another thing. Um, I ended up being like defined by my trauma and me defining myself by my mental health issues. Like, oh, uh, you know, instead of like working on my issues, I would just like, oh, well, it's because um, uh, I have PTSD. I have comorbid PTSD, so what, what am I going to do? Uh, and no, and the doctor, like the, the therapist told me, you know, you have an amazing tool right now for processing trauma and i was like what well, is your baby learn from your baby how to process trauma what you don't understand is that life is traumatic life in itself is a traumatic event we go from traumatic event to traumatic event but babies what they do is they incorporate those traumatic events into their life they make them part of themselves. You as a parent do a better job when you tell the baby, oh, see, you fell down in the knees. Don't worry. You're going to keep falling. You're going to be fine. We're going to be around. If someday you get hurt, we're going to be here as well. We're going to love you. We love you very much. You know, not like, oh, my God, you fell down. Come here. Get up. Never going to happen again. Not, no. You know, and the baby cries, takes a moment to cry. Process the trauma, makes it part of their life, keeps going forward. Same thing with my traumatic issues. Um, I gave them space to resurface because that was the magic of uh, CPTSD for me. That CPTSD was bringing all these issues and I was just like, no, I can't relieve that. Oh my God, what the fuck was that? You know, during this year, every time that something was resurfacing, I just let it I just let it in I let it in and if it was too strong I cry fall down in a bowl do the same thing that my baby does and after the cry I felt lighter and I felt like okay so that's a part of my life okay how do I how do I incorporate sexual abuse into my life and that's when I started like Alright, so sexual abuse. What's the problem that I have with oh it's the it's the whole survival thing. Oh fuck. I've been in survivor mode ever ever since I was a child. Ever since they told me like, oh shit, you're a survivor of sexual assault. You're destined for this. And I let other people dictate what I can do with the things that happened to me in my life. Other people told me, since you're a survivor of sexual assault, you only have two options. You're going to be a victim all your life or you're going to be a perpetrator. How are you going to live with that? How are you going to live with only two options in your life when you suffer something that you were responsible for? <laughs> something that happened to you in spite of you. Like I didn't do anything to deserve that. Yet it happened to me. The first thing that I had to do was like, okay, first of all, I'm going to take this survivor thing away. I am going to be the victim for a moment. I'm going to enjoy being the victim of something that happened. 
and then I'm going to understand that it wasn't my responsibility to take care of a little kid in another house that was my mom's and my dad's. And I'm going to understand as well that this motherfucker is a monster and that all the rage that I have against him is valid. That I don't have to take it against anybody else the way I used to. Yeah? I used to take my anger out on everybody. I don't anymore. I try not to do it sometimes. Especially if I don't want to talk to somebody, I just let him have all the anger, uh, all the anger, you know? <laughs> but um, you make it part of yourself because it's a part of yourself. And then you cry if you need to cry. That's how I process it all the thing. And trust me, I, I'm still doing it. Like every time that something pops out, I'm like, oh, here I go. And then I have a cry. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing this. I, yeah, oh yeah. it's. Uh, <laughs> oh. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I want to ask you are you afraid? Are you afraid? You won't. You won't be a, like. Are you afraid you you will traumatize your own child? That's the magic of CPTSD, Monique. Mm -hmm. I get to have all these scenarios where I fuck up with my child. I I see them all the time. She just she just went through a. Um, an infection of the eyes, you know, like mm -hmm. pink eye. Mm -hmm. And my partner was like, well, let's wait a little bit for the anti antibiotics. The doctor said that it was okay if we did the calendula. Baby rubs her eyes all the time. And I'm seeing the baby and the baby has like, the, the eyes are getting more swollen and more swollen. And all I'm thinking about is like, I'm gonna let my baby go blind, mm. you know? So fuck yeah, Moni, I think, all the time all the time the only thing that my brain tells me is that i'm gonna fuck up with this i'm gonna fuck up this chick this child the thing that i fear the most is that somebody is gonna abuse my child and i'm gonna kill that person and it's not the abuse that is gonna hurt my child it's the fact that i'm gonna hurt somebody else and they and, and my child's gonna see so yeah all the possibilities to fuck up my child are there do I let that dictate the way that I interact with my child uh, no no this doesn't work all the time and it's easier saying it here on this podcast and doing it but I refuse to do that I I rather enjoy the moments with my child and show my child hey, it, it's also a very pretty world. There's a lot of, like, positive things worth experiencing. There's going to be a lot of fuckers out there trying to hurt her. And I have them all in my head all the time. Nevertheless, I'd rather my child enjoy whatever it is she needs to enjoy <laughs> right you, now. You are a brave person, really, like... Uh, I, yeah, I am speechless. <laughs> anyway, uh, audience here, uh, I'm crying. I have no <laughs> words, and uh, I think the podcast is coming to an end. Um, yeah, I am not going to have children, but I'm so uh, touched and inspired by Carl, and uh, I think your baby will have a wonderful life. I uh, I sincerely hope so. Mm -hmm. Cool. Then, uh, listeners out there, uh, as usual, uh, stay healthy, stay safe, don't kill yourself. Bye bye. Bye. Hey, I was quite emotional at the end of the, of the podcast, so I um, ended it quite suddenly. Yesterday, I took a day off to reflect and uh, to relax. I had a very uh, long, deep conversation with my mom. Um, I really fear that uh, I, although I'm from also from a dysfunctional family, uh, it's very dysfunctional uh, with my mom for many, many years. 
but、um, I feel so privileged and so blessed that、uh, my mom behaved the way she did because of the permanent poverty and stress. But once we remove her from that environment, she is a very reasonable person. And、uh, yesterday we talked about、uh, my my hopes and my dreams,、uh, my anxiety, my fear. She encouraged me so much, and、uh, I was really really impressed. And I realized, oh,、um, the burnout I have been talking for quite a while on this podcast. I realize it's not about the workload, but it's about uh, uh, my anxiety, my fear for the future, and my mom really helped me to to see there's not so much I need to be fear, and、uh, in the worst case, I have a very easy uh, uh, backup plan,、um, and、uh, Carl really made me realize that.、Uh, What a privilege and how lucky I am!、Uh, despite the traumatic past, that、uh, my mom now is open to talk and is open to communicate, is open to change, and demonstrated her ability, her capacity to change, which impressed me constantly, and、uh, I I feel truly truly blessed.、Um, yeah, I I will try to. Uh, manage my anxiety and、uh, try to manage the workload and、uh, hope there's no burnout in near future. Thank you so much.